I don't know if you're like me or not, um, but whenever I am forced into a new setting with people I have never met, it helps to have an ally, a friend, who not only knows the people who are there, but who also knows me. I often think back on the first time I was invited to a big family gathering at my wife's, who was then at the time my almost girlfriend's grandfather's house. Whenever the Haley clan met, for those of you that have met uh, Daryl, then you totally understand what I'm about to say. Whenever the Haley clan met, it was a formidable mass of eccentric and yet extremely loving characters. The family is so uniquely close and informal and blunt that had I been forced to face that first get-together on my own, I might very well have been traumatized. I remember driving up to the address that had been given and seeing a mass of cars parked in the driveway. Now remember, I'm just the boy that's interested in the girl and I'm trying to get to know her family, and I've never met any of these people before. And I drive up, see all these cars parked. There's three siblings, uh, so, so that's, that's right, that's three sets of couples, um, and all their kiddos, all the cousins, and all the family friends that wanted to come and were there just to kind of hang out and happenstantially meet me. As I approached the door, I could feel my heart beat with increasing ferocity, as if it were demanding me to turn back, or else it would jump straight out of my chest and save itself. I knocked on the door, many of you have experienced what this is like, and held my breath. Fortunately, Rachel was the first one to come to greet me. The sight of her, now you've seen her, the sight of her. And her welcoming smile just brought this wave of calmness that told me I had an ally, a public advocate, who would make sure it all turned out okay. And her timing could not have been more perfect, because the moment I stepped into the door, I faced her grandfather. Now, before I arrived, Rachel had done the hard work of laying a foundation of history and background so that, hopefully, things would be less awkward. They weren't less awkward, but that was the attempt. She was hoping that in telling the family about me, where I'd come from, where I lived, that maybe the family wouldn't grill me. Maybe I would feel just kind of a smooth introduction into the family. Um, But it just so happened that the place where I grew up on Lake Eufaula in southeastern Oklahoma happened to be her her grandfather's favorite fishing spot. Would go there every year, had a lake cabin on the lake, I passed it as a little kid. I even remember seeing a little girl out there playing in the backyard with her grandfather, which happened to be my wife that I didn't know at the time. And he would go down and fish, and and I lived right next to the dam. You know, the Corps of Engineers built this huge dam on Lake Eufaula. It turns out electricity for half of Oklahoma. Um, and, And it's on that dam that the best fishing spots are. Of course, I didn't know that she had told her family, any of these details. And so I was absolutely started when the first thing out of her grandpa's mouth was, well, there's the damn boy. (laughs) As you can imagine, to hear those words, the first time meeting her grandfather, were not all that pleasant. And it wasn't until Rachel, I caught Rachel's winking eye and her whisper that said, I told him grew up on the dam. He's not cussing you out. (laughs) Smooth things right up, having an ally. Because of her, I was able to enjoy the party. The rest of the time was a whirlwind of laughter and joy. And to this day, I think back with somewhat of a fondness uh, for the first time I met her grandfather and fell in love with her family. Now I'm thinking about why that first meeting went so well. I credit the success 100% to my advocate, my insider, who aligned herself with me so that I could be brought into the family. Remember, I have no connection with these people whatsoever. She could have easily spent her time catching up with her cousins, catching up with 
uh, her aunts and uncles, but instead she attached herself to me, sat with me, laughed with me, interpreted her family's jokes to me so that I could experience unity with the rest of the family. Isn't that similar to what Christ has done for us? You know, in taking on flesh, he has unified himself with us so that we could become unified with God. Sin left an unbridgeable chasm between man and God. Unbridgeable. Nothing you could do about it. And try as you might, nothing could shorten that gap. There was even once upon a time that humanity tried to build a tower with its top up to the heavens just so that they could rebuild the connection themselves. And it didn't work. They fell short. No man-made ladder can reach high enough to bring us back to God. It must be God who comes down to men to build the connection. Jesus is the great bridge builder. He's the stairway to heaven. He's our ally, our advocate, who stands with the outsider and brings us into the family of God. We've been exploring the question, why must the Son of God take on flesh? Why the incarnation? Why Christmas? And now we come to the second section in Hebrews chapter 2. And what we'll see is, is that it was necessary for the Son of God to take on flesh in order to sanctify us for worship and to restore us to a right relationship with the Creator. So that's why the incarnation was necessary, so that you and I could be brought in. He came out of heaven, stepped down to bring us up and into the presence of God. He's our ally and our advocate. Now, my prayer is, is that for those of you that have felt left outside, that you'll be shown just how inside that you are because of Christ. You might be left outside of society. You might feel pushed to the margins, pushed to the corners, forgotten by other people. But God has not forgotten you, and he has not left you outside. In Christ, you are brought in to experience a joyful relationship with him. Now, in contending for the sufficiency of Christ's intercession, the author of Hebrews appeals to the son's solidarity with suffering humanity. In other words, in becoming a man, the son of God aligned himself with hurting humanity. If any of you have ever suffered, Jesus has stood with you, aligned himself in that suffering, accomplish salvation, redeem sinners to once again worship God, also that we could live forever in the presence of God. He is the righteous one who has identified himself with unrighteous people like you and me. Not like them, like you and me. We're the unrighteous people he's identified with. In order to bring us into glory, his righteousness matched with his willingness to stand with us, to stand for us, leads to our justification, our being, being declared righteous in the presence of God. It's because God looks at the righteousness of his son who stands in front of us, who stands uh, with us, in whom we stand, and he sees the righteousness of his son, and because of that, we have been declared righteous and then adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters. Now, the idea that one man's righteousness or his unrighteousness impacts the righteous or unrighteous status of many is a concept that's well established throughout the entire Bible. I think the clearest example of this is Adam. As the first man, Adam was the representative head of all humanity, right? He was our champion. He was the El Capitan, El Presidente of humanity. In him, all humanity was summed up which is why his disobedience changed the course of all human history. Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. In other words, Adam's disobedience subjugated all his future sons and daughters. You and I, under the reign of sin and death, we are born with a bentness, right? Being bent. We're no longer the straight, upright people that God has called us to be. Adam bent the, the image of God in man. And because of that, we are born bent. And in our bentness, we are, we are attracted to sin. We are born with this 
magnetism, to, to lustful cravings and idolatry, every single one of us. You don't have to teach us how to sin. We're just naturally drifting in that direction because of Adam's decision to disobey God. Sin dethroned humanity's first royal men, man and then enslaved all of us to the reign of death. Another more subtle example of how one man's righteousness or unrighteousness affects the whole congregation is that of Israel's kings. It is no coincidence that a king's status as righteous or unrighteous determined the righteous or unrighteous state of the nation. When Israel's king, wherever Israel's king went, so went the nation. If Israel's king worshiped God, then the nation worshiped God. Typically, if the Israel's king uh, cleaned out the temple, he reinstituted temple sacrifices, then the whole nation for that period of time worshiped Yahweh. But whenever the king brought in idols, whenever the king allowed Baal worship and set up asherahs and high places, then all the nation flocked to these places just like the king did. We have all kinds of examples of this in the books of Kings and Chronicles. Solomon, who... Uh, inherited the throne from his father, though initially starting off on the right foot, ended up marrying women from outside nations who brought with them their foreign gods. It wasn't about the fact that they were foreign women. It was about the fact that they had foreign gods. And so when they came into the nation of Israel, they brought with them these idols and Solomon built houses for their idols. You don't want to make the wife, in this case, your hundreds of wives, mad at you because you don't worship their God. So he instituted idolatry and that started this long progression down into sin where Israel's worshiping the Asherah, the totem pole of idolatry and worshiping in the high places and constructing golden calves and even sacrificing their children to these idols. We have others, other examples, Jeroboam, who's jealous of Rehoboam, who's jealous of the temple builds his own little high place with these golden calves where people can worship at them. That first event initiates Samaria's downfall and eventual death because of the, uh, the Assyrians. King Asa of Judah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David, his father had done. And one of the ways that he did that was he took out the Asherah, wiped out the high places and told everybody to repent and worship God. And they did. So over and over and over, we see throughout the scriptures, whatever the king's devotion to the Lord or lack of devotion to the, to the Lord is, determines and governs the devotion of the people. The king either restrains the people away from idolatry or he releases them into it, one, of the, one or the other. The king sets the tone. And so as the entire Old Testament demonstrates, this is the message the Old Testament gives us. We are in desperate need for a righteous, royal king who will keep us from sin and idolatry and lead us in righteousness. My friends, we are not competent. Thousands of years of scripture, hundreds of examples of why you and I are not competent to obey God on our own. We cannot lead our own righteous life. We simply are incapable of doing it. The moment we even think that we're righteous, the moment we think we're humble, is the moment that the carpet's pulled out from underneath our feet and we're proven to be arrogant and prideful, just like everybody else. The moment we think we're being righteous and pursuing godliness is the moment that God reveals we're actually legalistic and judgmental. We are simply not capable of being our own righteous king. We do whatever is right in our own eyes without a king. So we're in desperate need. Now, the problem is, is that all the righteous kings of the Old Testament, Hezekiah, Asa, David, all these guys, Josiah, as good as they may have been, they were still sinfully tainted and they eventually died. How terrible is that? Finally get a good king who wants to lead us and restrain us from idolatry and lead us in the worship of God to lead us in humility and he dies or sins and leaves us needing a new king. What we need is not just a righteous royal king to restrain us from idolatry and lead us in righteousness. We need a perfect, eternal 
righteous king. Perfect, sinless, and eternal righteous king. One who won't die and then never come back. We need one to reign forever. According to the New Testament, Jesus is that king. He's not just the righteous royal one. He's the eternal righteous royal one who leads his people into righteousness and restrains their idolatry. He has stepped into human's fallenness, taking on flesh. And, and, and I think sometimes we think, you know, in, in our midst of thinking of Jesus as sinless, that he, he was a totally different kind of guy. He was sinless, which means that he had moral perfection. He was ethically pure. His heart was absolutely innocent, but his body was as limited and able to be broken just like yours was. He could get paper cuts just like you could. He bled just like you did. Like every bit of limited, fallen human status, Jesus took on except for sin. He was a new kind of Adam, a new David, whose righteousness realigned God's people in a righteous status before God. He has come down in the flesh to reign and to do, guess what? To tear down the Asherah and the high places of your human heart. He's come down to reverse the effects of Adam's rebellion. He's come down to lead his people in the proper praise of God as the royal worship-leading king. Jesus has come to, to lead us in righteousness, to restrain us from sin. And because he's eternal, he will always be there to do that. This is precisely the point that Hebrews 10 through 13 makes in its explanation of Jesus' superiority and his sufficiency as king. We need no other king because he's all the king that we need. He's all the king that we need. Can, I, can, can we just bask in the good news of that? You need nothing else. You need no one else. You're left with no other emptiness. You're left with no other dis dissatisfaction. He is the satisfying all the king that you need. I don't know, it just seems good news to me because every once in a while I think, man, I'd really like for that guy to like me <laughs> or whatever. The, the reality is that he's all the king that we need. We're not missing anything and not having anyone else. We need a king who will walk among us and lead us in the glory of God. And it's this king who has come from heaven, who has become like his people in order to make us sanctify, that's to clean us up, to, to equip us to become worshipful, truly worshipful sons and daughters of God. Now, the thing about allies, advocates, intercessors, and mediators must is that they must necessarily relate with those to whom they stand. See, Rachel and I were friends. If, I, if she had never met me, didn't know me, that first family get-together, there's no reason in the world I should expect her to be my ally and advocate at the family get-together. But it's because we had this connection and this friendly connection that we knew we were about to become more than just friends. It's because of that kinship, that, that connectivity there, that we were hoping that we were moving beyond friends to becoming family, possibly, that she became a worthy advocate for her family. In the Old Testament, you read about redeemers like Boaz. And the thing about redeemers is that kinsmen's re kinsmen redeemers had to be just that. They had to be kin. They had to be family. They had to be related to the people that they were redeeming. Boaz was Ruth and Naomi's kin, which put him in the perfect spot to be able to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Even Yahweh, who is the great Goel, the, the kinsman redeemer of Israel in Exodus, he calls Israel my firstborn son. Yahweh does not come just to save some foreign people. Yahweh comes to save his family, his son. Later, he takes on the image as a husband. It's no longer just his son. Now Israel is his bride, family. Have you ever thought of this? Jesus took on flesh to become your family. As most high God, as the second person in the Trinity, who's eternal, he had nothing in relationship to you. He never bled. He never thirsted. He didn't know what it was like to lose something. 
What, what does he have to lose? He has everything. He had absolutely nothing in relationship to you, except for being your creator. And so what does he do? How do you redeem something that you're not related to? Well, you put yourself in relationship to it. That's what he did. He took on flesh so that he could become the kin of humanity. God became human to save his human family. Man, have you ever seen such love as that? Friends, I hate to tell you this, but the people that get my best devotion are my family, my kids, my friends, my best friends, my kin, right? These kindred spirits that I'm with. If I don't know someone, I'm not, eh, I'm not sure I'm going to be pouring out all this energy for such a person. But Jesus, Son of God, having no relationship to us, takes on flesh so that we would become kin, so that then he could become our Goel Redeemer, our kinsman Redeemer. How many times in Scripture does Scripture use the metaphor that Jesus is our brother? It's amazing to think of that, that the most high God, creator of the universe, creator of the Milky Way, the one who has seen things we can never even fathom, the one that knows what's at the bottom of the ocean, that God took on flesh so that you could know him as a sibling. Just can't fathom it. I'm not demoting myself to my kids to become their brother. But God took on flesh to become kin with people. He shared in our experiences. And in particular, he shares in our suffering. And in this way, his suffering becomes credentials that qualifies him to be the perfect worship-leading king who restrains us from idolatry and leads us in righteousness. The author explains this. For it was fitting, or proper, or appropriate, whatever word you want to say, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their perfection, the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this verse, just right off the bat. First off, while the Jewish community could not fathom a Messiah who suffered the death of a cross, the author of Hebrews argues that there is nothing more appropriate for God's Messiah. It wasn't inappropriate that he died on the cross. Everybody was sprawling and, 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 and seeing that how could he be Messiah if he suffered such a death on the cross? And the author of Hebrews says it was exactly the way it was intended. There's nothing more fitting than for that. His suffering was according to plan. The cross was no accident. It was not a variation from God's intentions for man's ideal king. If anything, it was absolutely essential for the king to undergo suffering. To have a king who did not suffer is inappropriate, unfitting. His suffering are the credentials for why he can wear the crown. Let me just give you good news. As a pastor, I often hear the phrase, you just can't understand. You just can't possibly know. And I can't. But those words don't apply to Jesus. Do you realize that? To, to say something like, you just don't know how painful this is. That doesn't apply to Jesus. He absolutely understands every bit of the suffering that you go through. And not only that, he's walked through it. He's endured it. I may not understand. I have a limited experience of suffering, but Jesus does perfectly. And that's why he's king. And that's why he's qualified to lead you through cancer, through job loss, through the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child. That's why he's qualified to lead you through family dysfunction because he knows it better than anyone. He walked into the dysfunctional family of humanity and was murdered by them. So that we could have the peace of God. He knows. He hears. 
He sees. Those of you who have had people that laid hands on you in an inappropriate way, Jesus knows what that's like. He loves you. He knows your suffering. Again, nobody else might. Nobody else may ever understand. He does. Absolutely fitting for him to suffer. Second, the necessity of suffering is somehow in this text connected to God's goal in bringing many sons to glory. God's mission of bringing humans to glory implies that humanity is not at this moment in glory. If you need to be led into glory, that means you are outside of glory. Have we basked in that reality at this point that we are not where we need to be? <laughs> I don't care if your finances are all in order. I don't care if you've retired and you've made it. The reality is, is because of sin, none of us are where we need to be. We're being brought to an ultimate destination, which is into the glory of God. When Adam and Eve sinned, man's glory gave way to groaning. 100%. All that is sad and bad is a direct outcome of man's rebellion. Sin has put us outside. We are outside the garden of Eden. We are outside the presence of God and we are in desperate need to be brought back inside. So if you feel like an outsider, there's nothing more appropriate than for you to feel as a sinner because that's exactly what we are. We are outsiders. But God in his great mercy has not left us on the outside. He's not left us in our exile. He has sent his son to bring us home to bring us back into his glory where we will find light, life, satisfaction, and blessing. The eternal God of the universe has engaged in a mission to bring sinners like you out of the domain of darkness, out of your sin, out of that sexual inappropriateness that you have, have uh, done in your past, out of the addiction, out of the gossip, out of the muck and mire and hatred of all humanity, out of even your sorrow to be transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son where you have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That's what he's done for us. It was fitting that Jesus as the founder, the author, the originator of humanity's salvation be made perfect through suffering. Now, I don't know about you, but the idea that God, the creator, would make Jesus perfect through suffering seems really odd language to me. Does anybody else struggle with that when you hear about language about Jesus being made perfect? That seems strange. Like, why, why would he need to be made perfect? I think sometimes when we think of Jesus, like, okay, Jesus is sinless, right? He's morally perfect. So why in the world would he need to be made perfect? And we tend to only have this idea of being made perfect on this moral, ethical level, as in we, we need to be made perfect because we are at the moment imperfect, right? But this doesn't apply to Jesus. And that's not what the author is talking about here when he talks about Jesus needing to be made perfect. It falls short. If you, if you leave this on this moral perfection that Jesus was somehow lacking in his moral perfection and needed to be made perfect, well, that's not what's that being described here. Instead, his being made perfect has more to do with his qualifications to lead humanity into glory. Commentator Thomas Schreiner notes that the, same, that the same idea for perfection, when used in reference to Old Testament priests, often denotes consecration, right? It's, it's them taking on something so that now they are qualified and consecrated to do their duty as the priest. So you think of the anointing ceremony, which often required sacrifice, sprinkling of blood from that sacrifice onto the priest. They put the robes on him. They sprinkle blood on his robes. They anoint him with oil. All these things perfected him for service. In other words, qualified him. This qualification, this consecration seems to be what the author's pointing to in Hebrews 2.10. Jesus' suffering, which made him perfect, Jesus' suffering is in a sense, his credentials for kingship. In some spaces, 
there's the concept of leveling up to perform a task, right? Those of you that deal with certifications, that deal with uh, things that require special training, you understand this, right? So you, you, you can't just get a degree and then go work at a job in some places. Sometimes you got to get the degree, then go to the job, and then take a special training to get certified. And oftentimes in the workplace, it's called leveling up, right? In academia, a student can take a language class in order to level up to the qualifications for PhD studies. In fact, a couple of years ago, not long after starting my own doctoral work, I had to study, I had to enroll in and pass. That was the key, was pass, intermediate Hebrew and German in order to level up to the rigor of doctoral studies. They, in the mindset's this, if I can't read German or at least know how to translate some German, if I can't understand Hebrew, I'm not qualified to write and study Old Testament Hebrew text at an academic level. I may be able to do so as a pastor, may be able to do so as a lay writer, whatever. But in order to engage with these academics, you've got to be able to level up with them, right? You've got to be able to read the Hebrew and read the, the German. It's hard to argue with an academic who argues back in German. You got to, it's a bit of an unfair fight, right? When, when some guy, uh, Schlamacher, I can never say it right. When he, when he writes something in German, he's like, I have no idea what he's saying. It's just not a fair fight. So to be able to at least understand a little bit of what he's saying levels out the playing field just a bit. So we level up. Jesus, however, didn't so much have a leveling up. He had a leveling down. His suffering was his leveling down to our level so that he had the qualifications to be our suffering servant, Davidic king. Have you ever thought about suffering in that way? Jesus is suffering in that way? That this was his necessary training, his necessary qualification, his certification to be king. Suffering. Can you imagine God giving us a king who is so high and lofty that he is beyond our pain, man though he is? Just imagine if Jesus just came in flesh and blood, but never spilt blood. We don't have much to relate to him, do we? Because we spill blood all the time. If God simply sent his son to take on flesh, but that son never felt pain, there's not much we still relate with him in. For a human being not to experience pain is an abnormal experience. But Jesus comes down to our level, levels down in suffering so that he can be effective in his priestly kingship as he suffers for us. That's an amazing glory of God there. That's an amazing gospel. By way of analogy, those of you that have suffered know how impactful it is to have the encouragements of someone who has gone through your same kind of suffering. Yeah, it's one thing. Like, like I've, I've never met anyone that's ungrateful for the encouragements that they get from regular people, right? But, but to, to have lost a son and hear from someone who's never lost even a family member, their great-grandfather's still alive, and to hear them say, I know what you're going through. No, no, you, no you don't. You just can't relate because losing a dog is not the same as losing a son. So try not to have that connectivity in that. It is best to have the best encouragements, the sweetest encouragements come from someone who has gone through our same kind of suffering. It doesn't mean that those other sufferings don't matter. It just means that they know what it's like. They've been through it. There's a connectivity with that. I think of, I think of the way um, that I've seen a couple who suffered miscarriage giving hope to another couple who just lost a baby in miscarriage. There's something unique that happens there. I've never lost a child. And so even in that, I can't quite feel the pain. I can't quite resonate with that, that deep, sharp, heartfelt pain. Someone else that has can, and it brings a whole new level of hope and peace and encouragement to the situation. I mean, just recently, praise God, Dana has uh, finished off her radiation this week. And I think we could just praise God for a moment. Can, can we just give God a hand for that? 
One of the sweetest things about Dana um, that I saw uh, was when Dana first found out that she was diagnosed with breast cancer, Wendy Vaughn gives her a call, who also had breast cancer. And then Dana's already saying that she wants to be a resource to other ladies that are having cancer. There's just something about that shared experience and suffering that brings people together, that brings them together in a relationship that few can understand. And when friendships that have been forged in the fires of suffering are, are melded together, those kinds of friendships are extremely hard to break. Now, what does this say about Jesus, who has come and endured human suffering of the worst kind on our behalf? The innocent Son of God who took the unjust the death on a cross wasn't just the death of a son, wasn't death by cancer, wasn't death by a car accident. It was death of the worst kind. Innocent man dying the death on behalf of a criminal in the most torturous way that humanity had yet thought up. And he does so to relate with you, to connect. Because he knows that's in the shared experience of suffering that kinship is formed. It's in the shared experience of suffering and hardship that he would become qualified and credentialed to be your royal brother. You see, Jesus doesn't just know what it's like to be homeless or hungry or tired or hated. He also knows what it feels like to think that you're forsaken by God. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His experience of suffering has gone down to that kind of level so that every single one of us who have our depressive, deflative moments and we can't get up out of bed and we think that God has turned his back, he has gone down to that level so that he can say, I absolutely understand what that is and how it feels, and I'm here. Absolutely understands. To tell Jesus, you just don't understand, does not apply. He does. His suffering has welded his heart to ours. I want you to think of that image, that Jesus on the cross has welded his heart to yours in a way that the two hearts cannot be split apart again. He's developed such a kinship and suffering. He was the suffering servant who served us by his death. And now he is exalted as the Davidic king who can lead us because of his suffering into glory and life. He is perfectly fit to be our king. Not just because he took on flesh and blood like us, but because he suffered like us and more so. Now, what has he done with the credentials of his suffering? The author of Hebrews says that because he suffered like us, we have become like him. Can you imagine how profound that is? He became like us so that we could become like him. You want to know how this works? He is the son of God, eternal. He became finite human so that we could become eternal sons and daughters of God. He sanctifies us. He makes us something entirely new to bring us into a relationship with God. In verse 11, the author of Hebrews writes, for he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified all have one source. Some translations say all have one father. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is the sanctifier who is perfected through suffering, qualified through suffering to lead us, and we are the sanctified who benefit from his perfect suffering. We see something similar in Jesus' own words in John 17, verses 19 through 23. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one. There's the oneness. Already we had the consecration, the sanctification of myself so that they'll be sanctified. Now we get the oneness 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Talk about inside, outside. I'm in with you, Father. You're in with me, God. They're outside, but I'm bringing them in and bringing you in so that we can all be in together in this weird mixture of unbreakable bond. Who's in where? We have no idea. Everybody's in, in together. They and you, you and them, me and them, me and you, and all of us happy and unified together because I have come and consecrated myself and sanctified them for such a task. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. My friends, I do want to just pause for a moment and just say that's why Christian unity is so important. Jesus died for it. You may think it is absolutely appropriate to separate from brothers and sisters at the slightest little whim. They say something you don't like. They have a, have a difference in preference. They, they talk weird, smell weird, whatever. There are very few reasons to separate from the family of God. Let me rephrase it. There is no reason to separate from the family of God. If you must separate from your brothers and sisters in Christ, it is probably because they have drifted in the gospel and they may not be brothers and sisters in in Christ anyway. But as far as the gospel is concerned, there is absolutely no reason to separate from the people of God. I have given them glory that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even and loved them even as you love me. Do you hear the good news of that? I have done all this weird mixture, this hodgepodge of sinful humanity made righteous with a righteous and reconciled holy God. I brought them together, put them in together, shaken and stirred one another so they can never be broken off again. Why? So that everybody will know that you love them just like you love me. Do you want to know how God loves you? Just like he loves Jesus. And that's a big love. It's that big love that created the whole world and the universe. He was absolutely self-satisfied loving his son and his son loving him. Absolutely no need for you. But that love overflowed into your creation. And now the gracious triune God has brought you in and loves you like it loves each person in the Trinity. God, the father loves you like he loves his very own divine eternal son. So we see a number of parallels between this and Hebrews 2, don't we? Jesus' sanctification, consecration, perfection, whatever you want to call it, oneness with God in Christ, and even God's people being brought back into glory. The point of these texts is that Jesus became a man and suffered in order that through his consecration, his perfection, his qualification as the saving, suffering king, we likewise would become sanctified to have unity with God. He stepped into the fire and was burned so that the dross would be burned off us so that we could then enter into the holy presence of God. His sanctification led to our sanctification, and now our Savior's Father has become Abba, Father. How amazing is that? We had nothing to do with the thing, did we? We had nothing to do with the triune God's relationship. God was Jesus' Father, not mine. But it was because Jesus became like me that I became like him that now that Jesus has become like me and I have become like him, I have every right in the fullest sense to say, Abba, Father. As an absolute son of God, truest form. It's true of you daughters as well. He's become like you, that you would become like him so that we together could become family of God. This is what he he means when he says, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. 
I just love that. He's like, hey, Father, you know Lorenza? That's my brother. Hey, you know Clint? Weirdo though he be. (laughs) That was his wife, by the way. That's Jesus' brother. Have you ever thought about looking at other people that way? If they profess faith in Jesus and they believe Jesus, trust in him, that's the brother of Jesus. What do you mean talking bad about him like that? That's Jesus' sister, his little sis. You don't think he's mad about the way that you talk bad about him? (laughs) He calls us brothers. He became like us to make us like him so that we could then become just like him who's the son of God, and we now are the children of God. He aligned himself with us. Just like Rachel stepped out the front door, grabbed me by the arm, and brought me into the family. He has stepped down into sin, into human fallenness, grabbed us by the arm, picked us up out of our dead, helpless, nasty, selfish selves, and brought us into the family. There's more. In aligning himself with us as our divine king, he has become our royal worship leader. Have you ever thought about the divine king of all the universe leading us in worship? It's, it's, it's just a beautiful picture. The author quotes Psalm 22, 22 and Isaiah 8, 18 to show us how Jesus has come down to our level and now leads us in a glorious procession to the throne room of God. Psalm 22, 22 says this, I will tell or I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Can you imagine the beautiful picture of someday we're standing around the throne and guess whose voice leads off the singing? I think we always think that, we, we, I think in our picture of Jesus on the throne that he's dead silent and we're singing to him. He's the one that does the singing and helps us to sing. He's the moy on stage, striking the chord, leading us in the lyrics that we don't know. Jesus is the worship-leading king. I'm in the middle of a Lord of the Rings binge right now, okay? Um, My wife told me I didn't rest enough and that I needed to find something restful. And the Lord of the Rings trilogy is just the thing. And one of the beautiful things that I think is like when, when Middle Earth, sorry, I'm such a nerd. Um, when Middle Earth has been sanctified, Clint, it's biblical, and renewed, <laughs> the king of Gondor stands on top of the city and leads all his people in singing. He leads the singing. The king leads the singing. That's not quite the role I would have thought the king would have had. I thought people sing to the king. And there's an amazing thing because the pretender to the king, Lord Denethor, right before that, has the hobbits sing to him because he's Lord and he's powerful and they must sing to him. So sing me a song, Pippin. (laughs) Aragorn flips it on its head. He sings everybody else the song. He sings to the hobbits. Jesus sings in the midst of the congregation to lead us in worship. Can you imagine how beautiful it is? Before the throne of God above. To think that Jesus would sing that? I wonder what Jesus may feel when he sings before the throne of God above. How amazing, how profound is that? And instead of saying, I have a strong and perfect plea, he says, you have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest, my name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for thee. How amazing is that? Jesus singing. You know, the Old Testament talks about God dancing over his people. Isaiah 8, 18, and again, I will put my trust in him. This is Jesus speaking. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. In both of these texts, two things are apparent. First, the speaker recognizes his kinship with us. We are brothers. We are the children that God has given him. And then he recognizes his role in leading the assembly in worship. 
He proclaims God's name. There is one preacher in heaven. One preacher in heaven. I and my job are terminal. There is one person who proclaims God's name for all eternity. He proclaims God's name to his brothers. And there's only one worship leader, one singer. And he sings God's praise in the midst of the congregation. Moreover, he puts his trust in God so that the children will put their trust in God as well. Now, in identifying with us, we can now worship. Have you ever thought of how profound it is that the fact that you can stand up and sing? There's some people that I just know that I can't bring myself to sing. I sound terrible. My friends, you have every reason to sing. Jesus is living and working and sitting at the right hand of God right now to lead you in worship. You have every reason to sing. You can sing. So to say, I can't sing. Yes, you can. You may sound terrible, but you can. Because Jesus allows it. We are so dependent upon him. We cannot even sing worship songs with a true and effective heart without Jesus leading us to do so. So dependent on him. We cannot even sing our favorite hymns. We cannot sing before the throne of God above. We cannot sing, oh, the wondrous mystery. We can't sing those things without God allowing us to do so in his son, Jesus Christ. We depend on him for everything. Why then Christmas? Why then the incarnation? He came down to your level through suffering so that sufferers like you could be brought in to the presence of God. That is why we have an incarnate Jesus who at this moment sits at the right hand of God, reigning in power, as your guarantee that you are forever inside the house and will never be put outside again. Let's pray. Father God, I just ask, Father, that this poor presentation of Hebrews 2, Lord, will work its effect on somebody's life, Father, that it will bring fruit, hope, and encouragement, and that you will be glorified through it. Thank you for giving us Jesus, who has died and suffered so that we could be brought in the presence of God. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.